Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week I'm at one of the world's most iconic royal palaces, the Tower of London. The original White Tower was commissioned by William the Conqueror after his victory at Hastings in 1066, and the Tower of London as we know it today has been a symbol of the authority and power of the British Crown for almost a thousand years. It served as a palace, a prison, an armory, housed monarchs, traitors and spies, some of whom came but never left. It's been a site of torture and execution, home of course to King Henry VIII and his Tudor court in the 1500s. The Royal Mint was housed within these walls for centuries and the crown jewels still remain. I'm here to meet Yeoman Warder Andy Merry, or Beefeater Andy as he's known on Instagram. Andy has lived and worked at the Tower for the last decade and helped guard Her Majesty the Queen as she lay in state inside Westminster Hall. He had an impressive career as a Royal Marine Commando, stationed in places like the Congo, Afghanistan, Iraq and Somalia, before joining the garrison here and donning a rather fine tailor-made uniform. I met Andy for the first time last night when he invited me to watch the Ceremony of the Keys, which has been taking place at the Tower for the last 700 years. And now we're enjoying a takeaway coffee at his house in the grounds. Morning, Andy. How Good are morning, you? Helen. Very well, thank you. How was your watch? No traitors in the grounds last night? I'm no guessing. traitors. Nobody came home drunk. It was very <laughs> civilised, so I got a few hours sleep. Oh, good, good, good. Now, I've been fascinated, as I told you, by the Tower of London and its stories and secrets ever since I was a little girl and we came and did the tour when I was small. So, it was a real honour to be there last night and witness such an historic moment, the Ceremony of the Keys. Tell us a little bit about the Ceremony of Keys and what it actually is. It is the traditional locking up of the Tower of London. We could just close the gates, um, turn the key and, and go back to the TV. But obviously, like everything else in this country and certainly here, it's all about tradition and we, we love tradition and history here. So we do it because we always have done it. And I think that's important. Uh, a, a lot of people come to London, come to the Tower of London for that history and tradition. And it's just that small part that we can play in maintaining it for everybody. We don't know when it first started, but we believe it started on a December night, cold December night in 1340 when King Edward III had come back from wherever he'd been in London. He'd come back by river. They used to travel by river in those days. It was too dangerous to go through the streets of London, for, certainly for the king. He travelled by the river, entered the tower, and nobody challenged him. And he realised that if the king could get into the tower with nobody noticing, then so could anybody else. And so he insisted, quite strongly I'm sure, that the tower gates would be locked from the setting of the sun until the rising of the same. Very unspecific and obviously changes throughout the year. So that's what they did for a couple of hundred years until in 1555, Mary I, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's eldest daughter, was on the throne. She was a Catholic. A lot of people didn't want a Catholic on the throne in those days. They preferred a Protestant. She feared a lot of Protestant plots and there had been numerous ones against her. She feared the tower particularly being attacked. So she decreed that nine yeoman warders should keep an eye on the keys of the tower. They should always have them on their person throughout the day. And then in the evening, six yeoman warders would be responsible for locking up the tower and that one of those yeoman warders would always have those keys within his sight or, or about his person. And so they're really the two things that started the ceremony of the keys as we understand it. And then fast forward to 1826, when the uh, the Duke of Wellington is now the constable of the tower. He doesn't like that, that slipshod way of doing it. It was very haphazard. The setting of the sun and the rising of the same is very unspecific indeed. So he decreed that the time be set to 10 o'clock at night. And that would give everybody a set time to aim for. And that's indeed the time that we still do it. I found the whole thing moving for a number of reasons. So to put the hairs on the back of my arm up, that the jangling of the keys and the ceremony itself and the sound of the soldiers' boots on the 
cobbles. It, it really took you back. And the other thing I liked is that it's private. And although you allow a few members of the public in to observe, there's no photographs or video. That's really special, isn't it? That you have to watch it and commit it to memory and that you're not surrounded by a bunch of people taking photos. I think it's the least tourist thing that we do here for that reason. It kind of belongs to us. It's our ceremony and we let people watch our ceremony. And I suppose the deal is that, you know, they have to play their part by not taking pictures. And you will see pictures and film of the ceremony of the keys on YouTube, wherever it is now, but these are all rehearsals. So the actual ceremony has never been filmed. And you could argue it's exactly the same. The rehearsal looks exactly the same as the actual thing, but it's not the actual thing. And the other moving thing for me is the last post. Yeah. That's played as well, isn't it? Yeah, At yeah. the end of the ceremony. Yeah. So that's something we hear mostly, you know, any, anywhere in the town, if you're out of your house at, at 10 o'clock in the evening, you, you can hear the last post being played. And it's almost, it's almost like the rhythm of the tower. It's just something that you kind of get used to. You hear it and not take for granted, but you know, it, you do have to pinch yourself sometimes. And, and for me, when we have guests like yourself on the keys, that's when you remember how special it is because we see it and take part in it so often. It's just the keys, you know, it's just something we do here. But when we have guests, who you can see what it means to them. That makes you remember what a special thing it is to do. It's very special walking in when everybody's gone home. It was very dark last night and to come through the gates and see the Tower of London just by myself was really very special and I just wonder what it's like for you living in this iconic fortress and in the shadow really of where the crown jewels sit literally literally you are <laughs> you are very close aren't you yeah. to where the crown jewels yeah. are tell me meters. what tell me what that's like I know obviously you've been here 10 years so it's something you get used to but what's the bit of history around here where we're sitting now in your home to answer your first question when I first came here my wife and I said to each other look you know let's never take this place for granted but you're right, you do. It's where I live, it's where I work, and it's just where I live and where I work in the end. But again, when we have guests stay over in, in the house or like yourself coming last night and to see that wonder on people's faces, that's when you remember what a really special place this is. And even, even when you get off the tube at Tower Hill, you know, and you're just sort of heading home to the tower, but you'll see a tourist get off the tube and go, oh my God, there's the Tower of London. And they obviously researched it, looked at it. You sort of nod, cheeky little sly grin on your face and go, yeah, that's, that's my home. So that's really good. When you stop and think about it, it, it's incredible. To live in the shadow of the crown jewels, is that's just the building over there. I, I never really think about that. But once again, when we take people into the crown jewels and, and they look at them, and I can literally walk into the crown jewels while we're open anytime I like and go and look at them. So to me, I guess I do take them for granted. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I probably don't sound like a particularly nice person, there, but I do take them for granted. And actually what brought them home to me was seeing them on top of the Queen's coffin, actually, because... For the last 70 odd years, with the exception of the state crown that the Queen used to wear at State Home in the Parliament, etc., and one or two other items in the crown jewels that, that are bought out. So, so, for instance, they've got christening bowls and things in there, and every member of the royal family that's christened, they, they're bought out. But apart from those few objects, none of those objects have left that building really for 70 years. They're only ever used in a coronation. Most of the contents of that building will be used at King Charles's coronation. So, if you came here on that day, and I don't know why you would, but that building would practically be empty. Not not entirely, but practically empty. So to see those objects, the orb, the scepter and the state crown on top of the Queen's coffin, the first time I'd seen them outside of the box or the, the glass case that they're in. And so that was really special, actually, to see, and to understand and remember that they're working tools. They're there for a purpose, not just for people to come and have a look at and, and wonder at. There is a reason that we have all these things. And when they finally removed the state crown from the coffin at a funeral, 
I found that really, really emotional because that's literally, okay, you're not the queen anymore. That's going for somewhere else. That to me was quite overpowering almost. What was the significance of some of those items? The orb has a cross on it. And I, I'm not an expert on the crown jewels, but I believe that's God's power over the earth. And that kind of goes into the monarch. You know, the monarch has that responsibility. They're the head of the church. I'm not too sure about the scepter, but the state crown is the state crown. It's, it's you know, so the coronation crown, a lot of people think that there's one crown. There's not, there's two. The coronation crown is placed on the head at the moment of coronation. And then a couple of minutes later, it's removed. And then the, the crown they wear from then on is the state crown, which is the so one the coronation for. crown then is still here at the moment, waiting for the coronation. Is it's that actually right? gone away at the moment because it's being fitted to, ah. to Charles's head, the king's head. But normally, uh, it would but normally, be yes, here. it sits in there. Yeah, yeah, um, and you can see that. So at the moment, if you went in there, I don't think it's back yet, but it's not there. And this is the question we are asked most days: or oh, they're not the real crown jewels, are they? I quite like that question on a day of a state open in a parliament as an example, because I can then make the point, there's something missing. Why is that? Well, it's there's a state open in a parliament and where is the crown? It's on the Queen's head as, at the time. Well, therefore it is that they are the real crown jewels because it's not there. And there'll be a little card in there that says in use. And I think a lot of people don't understand that they are working objects, but because they've not been used for so long, we've kind of got used to this idea that, that they're just a display piece and therefore not something that, that is used. I think before we explore some of the stories and secrets that these magnificent walls and ancient chambers hold, what strikes me is that the Tower of London remains really relevant and it continues to play a key role in today's modern history. I mean, the lying in state of Her Majesty that you just touched on is a really fine example of that. What was that experience like for you, Andy? I would imagine that it was quite emotional. It was very emotional. Oh, I think it was the proudest moment of my life. It, it really was. So we were talking last night about 9-11 and we always remember where we were when we heard of the news of 9-11. And obviously you were there watching it. I was in the shower here. I had the radio on and then suddenly the radio just went completely quiet. And I thought, you know, has there been a power cut? What's happening? And it's when the newsreader then announced that the Queen had died. And you know, I was in the shower turn the shower off, I got out, I drive myself off and my wife phoned me at that point to tell me that the Queen had died and, and I couldn't talk to her because I was crying. And I think anyone who says they didn't cry at whatever point is definitely a liar or certainly it's unfeeling. It felt like we'd lost our grandmother. It's all we've ever known. So then things happen quite fast here at the Tower. So, you know, the Queen's dead, long live the King. And we had quite a lot to do at that stage. So one of the first things we did was... I can't remember the order, actually. I can't remember if we did a gun salute or the Ceremony of the Keys. I, I can't remember which way around. It may have been the Ceremony of the Keys was the first thing. So, of course, up until that point, whose keys? Queen Elizabeth's keys. So that stopped straight away. So that night, all of us went down in uniform. So although we weren't all taking part in the ceremony, obviously just one of us does, but we all went down and we lined the route. And it was the first time the words... The king's keys had been used for, for 70 odd years. And that's on the challenge, isn't it? When the soldier challenges. Yes. Yeah. Who, whose keys? The king's keys. Pass the king's keys. And that was for two nights because, of course, there hadn't been a proclamation. There was no proclamation that he was King Charles III because he could have taken any other name, but he chose Charles. And so two days later, after the proclamation, we then all went down to to do the ceremony keys again, where it had changed to whose keys, King Charles III or King Charles's keys. And so again, it was another change. And we still, and as I believe I did last night, we still, because it just trips <laughs> off the tongue, Queen Elizabeth's keys, you know, and, and it, it does trip off the tongue. So we do have to still think quite carefully because it just seems weird saying it. So we did those two things. There was a gun salute for the Queen dying, of course. 
And then a couple of days later, there was a gun salute for the proclamation. So we had two gun salutes. And I've got a really cool photograph somewhere of all of us in our red uniform sat where you were sat last night in the Byward Tower, watching the TV. We were watching the King's proclamation and we were ready to go out there and do the gun salute for the proclamation that we were now watching on the TV. And it's a really cool photograph. So there was that. Then we had to escort the governor of the tower. It's called the Liberties of the Tower. So you may know there's a pub at the top of the hill called the Liberty Bounds, and that's why. So it isn't just the walls of the tower. The tower actually extends a lot further, and there are markers on the floor, which is another ceremony that we do once every three years. But the governor gave a proclamation. He read out the wording of the proclamation inside the tower, and we all formed a semicircle around him because we're protecting the governor. We all then marched out of the tower, up onto the hill. We all formed a semicircle around the governor where he then read the proclamation again. And this goes back to the days pre-TV, social media. The peasants out there didn't know they'd lost their king. And so the governor's responsibility was to read to the peasants, listen, you've got a new king. The governor of Tower of London wasn't always very popular in those days. The Tower of London wasn't very popular, so he needed protection. So that's why we escort him in our full red uniform with our partisans and swords. And then we basically did that at all four compass points around the tower, outside, so we're marching along the streets. And then we came back into the tower and did it on the wharf. So that was the next thing we did. And then, of course, the Queen's line in state. And we'd always known that we'd be part of that. And in my time here, we'd practiced it, I think, at least twice. Very, very ad hoc basis. Very, very, listen, we're going to stand guard of the Queen. None of us ever thought the Queen would die almost. So it was just a quick half an hour in, in scruffy clothes. You know, this is the sort of thing that we'd be getting involved in. So when we were told we're actually doing it, the chief and the jailer, I think it was, they went to speak to the garrison sergeant major and all the others who, but this isn't all just, this is planned years and years in advance. So they opened the book, right, this is what you're going to do. So they were able to give us a quick heads up, which we kind of practiced up in one of the banqueting suites here in the tower and gave us a rough idea of exactly how it would work. And then on the day of the race, as it were, but it was about 10 of us, maybe 12 each day, went to Knightsbridge and they've got a false uh, mock-up of the catafalque in their gymnasium. Yeah. So that was put there and everybody involved in that day's vigil would then go and rehearse, a full dress rehearsal. So there was us, the gentlemen at arms, the gentlemen archers, all the other people that you would see, the guards officers that you would see all around the, the catafalque at different times. We rehearsed how we would march on, in what order, where we'd stand, it didn't look like there was a lot going on, but there was quite a bit going on with the different movements we had to make and, you know, the timings, etc. So we practiced it. And then we were then put in a minibus in all our uniform, which is a bit weird sitting in, you know, well, that's it's not easy as I explained last night about the buttons. And then we drove down to Westminster Hall and then we had a room up upstairs in Westminster Hall where there was a picture that came out, I think it was on Lad Bible or something like that. And it was all of us in our tight literally sat in a pair of tights and a t-shirt <laughs> you know it's the, the, the bit behind the scenes so there's us all looking lovely and smart and the, but the reality is these crutchless tights that we wear <laughs> with, with a t-shirt just, you didn't just, mention that no, they are, they are crutchless. it's for it's for ease of toilet breaks <laughs> and yeah so we wait there we'd get a list of because we did 20 minutes at a time you knew when you were on it was, it was like 20 minutes on two, two and a half hours off or something like that all through the night and then we'd get the minibus back here and most of us then did a day's work here and we each did it two, maybe three times. Each of us did it. You've um, served Her Majesty, well, for decades in the Royal Marines and, and now. Well, it goes back even further. So I, I was thinking about this. I would join the Royal Marine Cadets when I was seven. So although I wasn't serving the Queen when I was seven years old, I was wearing the uniform of a Royal Marine and I stayed in the Cadets almost up until the point at which I left school and joined the Royal Marines at 17. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So certainly since I've been 17 up until now, 
I've served Her Majesty the Queen. So to stand there, I mean, when you first walked in and you're in what is a beautiful, regal, stunning, very expensive, tailor-made, historical uniform, and you walk into Westminster Hall, what went through your mind, Andy, at that point? Don't trip up down these stairs. That's what I was thinking. It was was, (laughs) because we had to go down some stairs. So you formed up at the top of the stairs and you would have heard the two taps on the floor with a big staff. And that was the sign. So we, we're all sort of there and we're, we're talking and we're joking, you know, like, like people do. But as soon as that double tap went on the floor, everyone was serious face. And then down we went. So there would be, I think, two gentlemen arms at the front, then two guards officers, then the four of us, and then two guards officers behind us. And then we'd have to go down these stairs, turn right, and then march across the floor and then split to our different locations around there. So I, I was generally thinking... Just don't trip down these stairs. What an honour. But were you choked up at all? Because I mean, yes. millions, quarter of a million, not millions. It's estimated, I think, a quarter of a yeah. million queued up to 13 hours to go and pay yeah. their respects. It was. So a lot of people have asked me, what, what were you thinking about when you stood there for 20 minutes? And, and I said, well, the first time I was thinking 20 minutes seems like a long time. You know, <laughs> and then the second time I said, well, actually, that, that, that seemed to go quite quickly. Is that it? And then, so I literally didn't really think about much at all. I was just... Moving out there, I was just concentrating on getting it right, not making a fool of myself. And then after that, the, the next couple of times, I thought, well, okay, I'll count how many people walk past me. Because, of course, we're looking down, so we can't really see what's going on around us. The silence was really deafening. And all you could hear was people shuffling along the carpet. So you could hear that. And then you would hear people crying. And then every very occasionally, people would walk past us and say, thank you. They just, you know, of course, we can't respond, but they would say thank you. Uh, and off they went. And so I was counting how many people went past me, 607, by the way, was, was the most in 20 minutes. Then that got boring. So then I was thinking, I wonder if anyone owns the same sort of shoes that I've got. <laughs> so in all those people that went past, only one person had a, a, the exact same shoes that I own somewhere. Then I'd be looking at a piece of fluff on the carpet, which sounds inane, but but you can't, if you look at the, it's called a partisan, if you look at that, because it's so close, you start wobbling around. So you have to <laughs> look beyond it to stop sort of wobbling. So I'd pick a piece of fluff and then someone would kick it. <laughs> then I have to pick another bit for it. anyway. So someone said to me, "What does the coffin look like?" You know, and I said, "I don't know. I've not looked at the coffin. I literally didn't look at it. My back's to it all the time." And as we're marching out, we're just concentrating on getting it right, you know. And so we didn't really look at the coffin. You kind of see it in your peripheral, but I didn't look at it. So the very last one that I did was at seven forty to eight o'clock. On, I think it was on the last day, and all the way out there, I was saying to myself, "Look at the coffin. Look at the coffin. Look at the coffin." And so I did, and just had a quick look at it and, and carried on because we'd done it so many times by now, we were we were okay with doing it. And I made the conscious decision then to stand for that twenty minutes and think about the Queen. And I felt myself getting really choked up, and I was thinking, "Don't do it, don't do it." And, but it was just such a—it was just like, "Oh my God, the Queen's lying right there in this coffin." I'm in Westminster Hall where so many kings and so many things. You know, Charles the First was tried there, Guy Fawkes was tried there, all these things that have happened in that room, and here's me you know, just a small part of this massive thing. And when I marched away from that, the realisation that that was the last 20 minutes of service to the Queen. I feel myself getting emotional now. It, it was it was really powerful, very, very powerful. I'm sure it was. And I presume you'll be involved in some way in the coronation, will you? Yeah, we're not sure exactly what our part is yet, but but yes, we will have a part. We're not Again, we don't know yet. As I say, this, this book will be getting dusted off. We do know that the last coronation, the Queen's coronation, Certainly a couple of yeoman warders went down armed with pistols because, of course, the crown jewels are out of the box. They're in Westminster Hall waiting for the following day. 
And so we know that two Yeoman warders were down there armed. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't trust us with guns now, but it's all to do with the crown jewels. And so oh, we'll see. Fantastic. And also just while we're on this kind of relevant history, when I was researching you and a bit more about the tower, I didn't realise that people were imprisoned as late as the Cray twins because yeah. they were here, weren't they, at the yes, Tower of London? What yeah. was the backstory to that? Why were they here? So they were called up for national service. I can't remember if it's 1952 or 53, I think probably 52. They were called up for national service. They were a couple of young lads. They were called up for national service. They weren't really up for it. And so they, they legged it. And they were caught by a very tiny sergeant major who I spoke to once, actually. And he caught them at Waterloo Station. I don't know where they were heading to, but they, he caught them there. They could have not come with him. He was tiny. But they came back here with him. They came back to the tower. And they were at the tower because this is where they had to be to sign up. Uh, it was the um, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, I think. They were brought back here because this is where they were supposed to be. And at the time, and the cells are still there, actually. I think they've got water tanks in them now, but there's still the, the bars are on the doors, like a proper old Western cell, you know, like the, the jail type thing. And there's a tower either side of the entrance to the Crown Jewels, and, and there's a cellar either side of the clock. And, and that's where they were held one, one either side. And I think it was just for two or three days. So that was before all the notorious yeah, stuff I, they I did. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah this was they, in their early Very early days. age, yeah, 17, yeah. 18 maybe. And they then became the Cray Twins. They were taken away to a military prison from here. I think it was in Shepton Manor down in Somerset. I don't know how long they served because they were able. It was, and again, it wasn't because they were the Crays. They were just two lads who ran away from the army. But it's an interesting trivial pursuit question. Definitely. Yeah, and the other trivial pursuit question, which I really like, is that we do all imagine the blood and gore of Tudor times, and that's not really correct in terms of executions here, no, is it? No. The last execution was in 1941. It was a German spy, Josef Jacobs. His name was. He was executed. I think the Scots Guards were the firing party. And we've got a piece of paper somewhere, which is the orders for that day. And it tells you, know, the, the guard will have their breakfast at such and such a time. The prisoners will have his breakfast at such and such a time. And it's all listed. You know, he has to go and speak to the doctor to, to check that he's fit to be killed, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Ironic. So the doctor had to sign that. And so that you know, the, the time for that, and then there was the time for this, the time for that, and the time that he would then be marched to the execution site, the time the execution would take place, and then what happens after. It's all written down very, very militarily organised. And there were 11 German spies executed in the First World War. Karl Hans Lodi was the first one. The last one was uh, Josef Jacobs. And I, I can't remember the other names in the middle. So 11 in the First World War, one in the Second World War. So more people were executed here in the 20th century than in any other period of its history. And not many then in Tudor times. Six in Tudor times. Gosh, um, that's amazing. Six, six beheadings in the tower. Three Scottish soldiers were shot inside the tower in the 1740s. There were obviously quite a few murders over the years. But yeah, official executions, I was about nine uh, as opposed to 12. Andy, you are part of probably one of the world's smallest clubs, aren't you? Yeah. As a yeoman warder, tell me why. There's only 33 of us. And again, that's really special being, being part of such a small... And we were talking about insurance earlier. You know, that's another thing. Where there's, no, there's no yeoman warder beefy to part of, you know, what, what's your job? So we have to kind of find something that comes close and believe it or not, and I'm ashamed to say it, I always pick tour guide. Because <laughs> oh, that is, no, and I hate, so not as you know guide. that. I know but, that. But um, what else can you say? You know, it's, it's the only thing that we can put on an insurance thing. So yeah, there are only 33 of us and there's only ever been, since 1827, there's only been 417 of us. So more people have been to space than there have been Yeoman Warders. There's only ever been 417 of us and as of about four or five years ago, I think it was our last time I checked, there's 575 people. So it'd be considerably more than that now. Gosh, and you're only the fifth or sixth 
Royal Marine? Sixth Royal Marine. The sixth. That's incredible. What drew you to the role in the first place? Believe it or not, one of the guys here is still here. We served together as sergeant majors in the Royal Marines and uh, we were in Afghanistan together. And when he left, he's a Londoner, so he wanted to do this job. I'd never considered, I'd been here years ago, as most people have, I guess, but it wasn't something on my radar at all. And so I came here to visit him really, just, you know, my mate's a beef feature at the tower sort of thing. And I remember thinking this could be something I could do. So I applied for it. There was quite a long gap because they weren't recruiting at the time and I was doing other things. And it wasn't until a few years later that I applied and I actually didn't get in the first time. I failed the interview. It was quite bad. Um, so, uh, <laughs> oh, no, so we don't need to go the there. The classic research the company you're trying to get a job with. I, did, I really, I forgot about that bit. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I didn't do so brilliantly on that. Anyway, so I went and got a volunteer job at the Fleet Air Arm Museum in Yeovilton just so that I could say when I came back, listen, I've done some stuff with the public and in a, in a museum-y type environment and that seemed to work so yeah so I got the job on the second gosh second and, attempt. and beef eaters is a bit of a derogatory term isn't it I'm just wondering where that term comes from and what you know about it so no one really knows there's all sorts of nonsense out there. if you google it they say buffeteer some French word I've spoken to French people they never heard of that word but that would suggest that we were the waiters to the king then some people believe it's because we tasted the food of the king in case it was poisoned but as the king's bodyguard someone's just tried to poison the king and he's killed his bodyguards. So that doesn't make any sense. We think it's to do with being paid in meat. As the king's bodyguards, king or queen's bodyguards, they'd have a nice big slap up dinner each evening, they'd go to bed and they'd say to us, just help yourself to whatever's left, which sounds a bit rubbish. But obviously in those days, there was no Tesco's, you can just pop out for some bacon or something like that. And so that would have been a big deal to be, to be given this lavish food. People outside the town who would never have been able to afford that we think looked in on us with disdain. So it is a derogatory term in its origin, we think. And they would have said something like, look at them not in there, you know, eating beef with the king. So in that story somewhere is the truth. And no one really knows when it became, you know, we were just suddenly beef eaters. No one really knows when it started. And when you first arrive, I mean, presumably mm. to do the role, you have to have an interest in history, but is it a bit like taxi drivers learning the knowledge? Do you have to learn a lot of facts and dates and figures yeah. to enable you to impart that knowledge? Is that quite heavy going when you first arrive? Yeah, it's a nightmare. It seems impossible. And so you get a 25 page, I think it's 25 sides of A4, and you look at it and, and you cannot imagine ever learning that. It just seems impossible that you, you will eventually learn this. And you get six months. And for six months, I remember going to the pub with my colleagues and they're just sitting, talking and, and chatting about whatever the football or whatever it is they're talking about. And all I could think of was this story that I'm supposed to be learning. And, and they call you the tower mumbler because you're just mumbling it away. You're just saying it over and over again in your head. And, and it's really just repetition. And we all learn differently. But I never said a word of it out loud. I just did it in my head. You'll hear people tell you that they put post-its on the back of the toilet door. And as they're sitting on the toilet, they're sort of reading it. Some people do it in front of their families. My family's never heard a word of my story, even to this day. So if they're walking past, I might say, oh, there's my son or, or whatever. And they get embarrassed and scuttle off. But they've never done one of my tours. Have they not? No. No. And <laughs> send them to the tower. So, yeah, no one normally listens to the old man talking. So, and it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. And you're tested at various stages. So, when you do the very first block, they are literally blocks, a concrete block that you saw last night. So, when you've finished that part of the story, you're then tested by the jailer who says, Yeah, okay, you're doing okay. You can move on to the next bit. And then you're next tested, I think, at Traitor's Gate. And then you're next tested. I think that's it. I think you're then tested for the whole thing. So, you just build it up and build it up and build it up and build it up. Everyone hits a wall. There'll be a wall where 
me and you are from different parts of the country, so we will speak differently just naturally. So something that's written down, let's say how I would say it, may not necessarily work in your head. And so everybody hits that point where, and it's, it's just a case of changing a sentence around a little bit, and you'll struggle with it for, for days, and there's no rhyme or reason to that. And then all of a sudden you just change these couple of words, and then it just sits in your head. So there is a lot of facts and figures in it. And if I'm honest, what we learn is a little bit boring because there's too many facts and figures. Now, if I was coming to do a tour, I don't want to hear facts and figures because I'll just switch off. Obviously, we do have to include them, but you've got to sort of pitch it with kids and maybe people who aren't in the least bit interested in history. They've just come here for a day out. So you've got to try and entertain everybody and keep them interested in what you're saying. So where you do have to put dates and facts and figures in, it's always handy to keep a few out. Because if I'm bored, and I would be bored doing that, then you would see that in my tour. But you're a storyteller and I could see last night you do it with humour as well. And, you know, you had the people who were watching the Ceremony of the Keys were laughing at certain things. And that's it, isn't it? It's just making history interesting and bringing history to life. And if we started to talk about the history of the Tower of London, we'd be here for years, really. But what are your favourite stories and tales that perhaps are slightly out of the ordinary because we all know about Anne Boleyn and having a head chopped off here and that kind of thing. But are there a couple of little gems you can share with us that are, perhaps aren't as widely known as that? Yes, there are. Well, there are numerous tales. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you got? I yeah, might have exactly. another sip of my coffee while you're doing yeah, this. Yeah. I think my favourite story here, and it's the least well-known, but it is a factual story. It did happen. It's a guy called Arthur Capel. This was back in the 1670s. His father had actually been executed for some shenanigans before and was held prisoner in the tower before his execution. So Arthur Capel was accused of being involved in a thing called the Rye House Plot. It's called the Rye House Plot because they planned this thing in a pub called the Rye House. And it was just outside Newmarket. Charles II was a Protestant. His brother James was a Catholic. And again, it was that pendulum that used to swing between Protestantism and Catholicism. It was always a pendulum swinging in, in British history. And a lot of people didn't want a Protestant on the throne. So anyway, this plot was to kidnap Charles and put James on the throne instead. They were quite incompetent, so it it didn't work out. But nonetheless, it was called the Rye House Plot. And Arthur Cape was accused of being involved in this plot in some way. So he was brought here to the Tower, rather like his father, and was actually kept in the same room as his father was held prisoner before him, which would have been a bit disconcerting because his father was executed. And this was in what is now the King's House. While he was in there, Charles and James made an unannounced visit to the tower. Nobody knew they were coming, but you can imagine the flat. The king's just arrived in the tower. Oh my God, you know, everyone's running around. Then someone hears a scream from the king's house. A window flies open. A razor blade is thrown out of the window. A woman then comes out of the house, retrieves a razor blade and goes back in. The people that heard the scream were a child, boy, and a yeoman warder and a soldier all heard this and witnessed this. I don't know who, I guess the young warden soldier possibly ran into the house to see what the commotion was. And when they got in there, Capewell was found half in and half out of a water closet, so a toilet at the time, with the razor lying next to him covered in blood and his head virtually severed from his body. Not quite, but virtually severed from his body. The assumption was that he'd committed suicide. Well, if you read about trying to cut your own head off, it's impossible because as soon as you go through certain organs on the neck, obviously your brain stops working. It's impossible to saw your own head off. It's just impossible. So there's a big investigation and the king then just vanished. No one knows why he was there. And then he just wasn't there after this altercation in the king's house. So at the court case, at the inquest, the boy wasn't believed. The soldier was deported to the colonies and never seen again. And the yeoman warder was found washed up down by Gravesend, dead on the shoreline. 
But this is the big mystery. Who killed Arthur Cable? Because again, he didn't then cut his own head off and throw the razor out the window. Why did the woman retrieve it? And if you sort of Google it, it's a really, really interesting story that nobody knows the that answer to like right now. That sounds like it would make a, a very good film, It would actually. make an awesome film, wouldn't it? It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. And who were the most famous people that were here? Guy Fawkes was here, wasn't Guy he? Guy Fawkes was here. Rudolf Hess was here. All of the gunpowder plotters, the ones that weren't killed, being captured, were brought here. So yeah, Rudolf Hess, the deputy of the Nazi party, was one of the last prisoners, but as we discussed earlier, not the last, possibly the most high profile in many years. Three queens of England were held prisoner here. Anne Boleyn... Catherine Howard and Lady Jane Grey. Judge Jeffreys, hanging Judge Jeffreys, Thomas Cromwell, Thomas More, John Fisher, two saints. They were held here, executed on the hill, and they're now buried here in the tower, which is quite interesting, actually, because they're both Catholic saints buried in our church. So the church here is called a royal peculiar church. So my understanding of that is that it doesn't come under the diocese of a bishop. Most other churches are in some diocese, which is controlled by a bishop. This one isn't because it's one of the king's personal churches. I think there's six in London and two of them are here in the tower. So the king, certainly after his coronation, is the head of the Anglican faith, as indeed the queen was. We've got two Catholic saints buried in a church that exists for the spiritual needs of the head of the Anglican faith, and they were both executed by the very first head of the Anglican faith, Henry VIII. So it's kind of awkward. That's definitely awkward. Really Why awkward. were they executed? Because they weren't the same faith. No, not well, Henry VIII was a Roman Catholic, and a lot of people fail to understand that he was a mega Roman Catholic, and he was actually quite superstitious around religion and all the rest of it. And of course, he married his dead brother's wife, and it's one of the reasons he found as an excuse to then divorce his first wife is that thou shalt not marry your brother's wife appears somewhere in the Bible. So he didn't think about that So he thought, well, okay, the beginning. <laughs> I've, I've, got a, I've got a big reason to get rid of my first wife. It's in the Bible. He then split from the church in Rome in order to marry Anne Boleyn and basically made his own church, the Anglican church. But the way he worshipped was very, very Catholic. I don't understand the difference between how Catholics and Protestants worship. I don't, I don't know. But I know Catholic services are an awful lot longer than a, than a Protestant church service. But the way he worshipped was as close to being a Catholic way as was at all possible without actually being a Catholic. And I think the way they conduct services here to this day are exactly the same. It's, if you were a Catholic sitting through the church service here, you would recognise much of the, the service. So Thomas More ardent Catholic, he didn't want to go along with this change of religion, you know, and I'm sure a historian would explain this a lot better than me, but he didn't really want to go along with it. And, and Henry was like, come on, mate, we've all got to get on board. This is the new way. And he said, no, you're messing with things that you shouldn't be messing with. There were a few things that he was asked to sign in order to change the religion and all, and he refused to do it. And so Henry said, mate, if you don't do it, I'm going to lock you in the tower. He refused to do it. So of course he was locked here in the tower. John Fisher was another one. So they're both locked in the same tower, the bell tower, in fact. Thomas More was in the lower chamber. John Fisher was in the upper chamber. And they were there for 15 months. So that's why he, the film was made, The Man for All Seasons, because he was there throughout all those seasons. And initially, he would have had his books and, and his rugs on the floor and his tapestries on the wall. And it would have been as comfortable, I guess, a room as could be in Tudor times. But the more he refused to go along with Henry VIII's wishes, the more of that stuff was removed. So it was then just a bare cell, cold. You can imagine this time it would have been horrific. And eventually, Henry had enough. 15 months after they were originally locked up, they were taken up the hill. And within two weeks of each other, they were both executed. 400 years later, they were both made saints by Pope Pius XI. And so we have two Catholic saints buried in our church, but it's an Anglican church still. And I always feel very sorry for John Fisher. So they were both executed for the exact same reason within two weeks of each other. Thomas More gets a lovely painting by Holbein, and most people have heard of Thomas More. John Fisher gets a little sketch by somebody, 
and very few people have ever heard of him. And I always feel very sorry for him. But the underdog. What yeah. is incredible is when we were here last night and you were taking me to see a beautiful painting from the 1200s that can't have any light shone on it and isn't really available to the public because it's so precious, etc. But as we were going to the staircase, the windy little staircase to go up there, you said, oh, this is where King Henry VIII met Anne Boleyn when she arrived. And again, shivers went through my body. This is amazing. It's a fabulous place for that kind of thing. So we were standing on the spot, weren't we? Where is that when she arrived to marry King Henry VIII? It was, do you know, I'm not sure if they were married already. It was pre her coronation. So they must have been married already. Yeah. So it was, it was the night before her coronation. And is it true that she was kept in prison, but sort of luxury prison as opposed to a bare cell and that he was kind to her because a swordsman beheaded her rather than the... That was at her own request, apparently, the, because most most axemen in those days were incompetent fools. They, they weren't particularly good at beheading people. They were nearly always drunk and I guess they needed to be. And I saw a very interesting documentary which explained this a little bit more. So most axes in those days had a slight curve to them because they were woodsman's axes and, and it just aided the weight of the blade would then aid in swinging it against a tree. But if you were bringing the axe straight down like that, what tended to happen is that would take the blade away from the bit you were aiming at, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. quite often they would chop into the shoulders or the back of the head before they got to the neck. So there were a few documented cases of where, you know, executions went really, really badly wrong. So she wasn't really up for that. She didn't want to risk that. And so she opted to die in the French manner, which was with a swordsman. This is pre-guillotine days. You know, the guillotine hadn't been invented by then. She would have been grateful for that as well. That's extraordinary, isn't and, it? And so I think it's 125 people were executed up on the hill. So, and they were all men. And the reason they were beheaded is because they believed in those days that if you were killed in battle, that you would die at the hands of a bladed weapon of some sort, be it a sword or an axe or whatever. So that was considered an honourable death to use one of those weapons to execute you. People like me and you, you would have been burnt at the stake because you're a lady. I would have been hung, hanged, drawn and quartered. You know, <laughs> It was only the nobility that were allowed to be beheaded was supposed to be a quick and noble death. But of course, when they walked up the hill, peasants like me and you would love it because these are people who would never acknowledge our existence. We are nothing to them. And now all of a sudden they've been marched up the hill and we're loving this. And you would literally take your kids to go and watch an execution. There'd be all sorts of like a real fair carnival atmosphere going on up there. And it would be brilliant. And so actually almost the best part of their day was the bit where they got beheaded because the ignominy of walking up there amongst all these filthy peasants would have been awful for them. The people that were executed in here were spared that ignominy. They weren't going to put a woman through that. They had some standards, I guess. Uh, <laughs> They'd so, head off, but they wouldn't yeah, put so it through were, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the six people were executed in here. There was only one man. The other five were all women. Three of them were queens. And they would have seen that as a noble death with some dignity. There'd be no bay in mob or anything like that. It was done much more dignified. As opposed to being hung, drawn and quartered, which was what you said last night. Mm -hmm. Guy Fawkes was supposed to have had happened to him. What exactly is hung, drawn and quartered? And tell me that bit about he escaped that, didn't he? Still dead, but... So hanging and drawing and quartering is where they hang them until they're really uncomfortable. They might hang them a few more times. The purpose of that was not to kill them. They would then chop off their genitals. Remember, this is only men that this happened to. So they chop their genitals off and they were usually put onto a brazier, a barbecue basically, to sizzle away. And the idea behind that was that they could not procreate, whether in the afterlife, I don't know, whatever. But they, So they couldn't procreate. They would then insert a knife, nipple to navel, and drag that down, extract their intestines, which in itself wouldn't kill you. It would eventually, of course, but that in itself wouldn't kill you. They were also put onto the brazier next to your genitals. Then reach in, grab your heart, rip that out. Obviously, that kills you. That was also put on the brazier. And then you were cut into quarters. You, you were beheaded. You, your head was cut off. 
and you were also cut into quarters. And if you'd committed your crime in inverted commas in London, as an example, there were four entrances into London and each quarter would therefore be placed above the gate at each point of the compass and your head was then placed down on London Bridge. Guy Fawkes was the last of his co-conspirators to go. He'd watched that happen to all of his mates, basically. Wasn't really up for it. So when they put the rope around his neck, he allegedly jumped off the scaffold, which snapped his own neck. So he was dead, but they still had to do all the other stuff to him because that's what the law said they had to do. So yeah, they were pretty grim. Oh my goodness. Pretty grim times. What is your favourite part of the tower? When I come here, I haven't been lots, but as I told you, it's one of my favourite places to come. I really love the church. Now you said there's two, so I'm not quite sure which one it is I've been to, but there's a church that I think is really stunning here. And I do get completely fascinated with the torture and the cells. It's always women that do. I've only ever been asked that question by women. Where's the torture chamber? I like all the grisly (laughs) stuff and to try and find out. But where is your favourite part in the whole tower? And, And if you're, I don't know, you perhaps don't do this on a day off, but if you are on a day off and you go for a stroll, where's the bit that you feel a bit of peace at or fascination with? I'm probably going to say the church as well, not because I'm religious at all, but I think I said to you last night, often when we're sort of stationed in in the church, we have to spend an hour in there, just being there and asking questions, making sure people aren't messing about in there. And you'll often see people walk into the church. They sort of stand at at the threshold, they look around, and then they walk straight out again. There's so much to see and talk about in the church. I'm always amazed by that. But one of my favorite things in the tower, and which is why I guess the church, and it is nice and quiet when you're in, you're in there in the mornings before everybody arrives. It is really nice. It's really peaceful. But you think of all the incredibly famous people that are buried beneath your feet. It's amazing. But there's a cross in the church. It's a wooden cross. It's a wooden shaft. And that was made from the original roof of the White Tower, which Henry VIII had redone in the early 1500s. So that's an almost thousand-year-old piece of wood. It was there right from the start. That's kind of cool. And then on top of that shaft is a beautiful silver cross. And it's very obvious. You walk in the church, you can see this beautiful silver cross. And that was a gift to King George VI, the Queen's dad, from King Haile Selassie of Ethiopia in the, in the early 30s for assistance that was given to Ethiopia by this country. And, and again, it's a beautiful cross. But what I love most about that whole thing is, is that just beneath that silver cross are two really rudimentary, almost me and you could knock it up in 10 minutes in the garage, brass crosses, one on the front and one on the back. And those crosses were carried by Richard I on crusade in the 1190s. And there they are on this cross. And everybody looks at that cross. You can see it, and, but you will not notice these two little brass. And it's like that Indiana Jones film when he's getting the Holy Grail and there's yeah, that old knight yeah. there defending it. And the, you know, everyone picks the pretty one and they die when he goes and pricks the old cruddy one. And it's kind of like that. You know, you look at this beautiful cross in there and that's what you see, but you don't look at these things. And I was in Jerusalem earlier on this year and in the bit where Jesus was crucified, that sort of temple thing that's been built around it, there are crosses. There. So every crusader that went there carved a cross into the wall. So those two crosses have been in that temple church, whatever it's called, all those years ago, 900 years ago. And there they are on this cross. So I love that. If I had to pick something, that would be it, I think. And also things continue to be discovered here, like the painting you showed me. Well, it was hidden behind plaster in a Tudor fireplace, wasn't it? But dated back till when? 1200s uh, or something? 1380s. 1380s. I mean, all that sort of stuff's fantastic. You spent, I think, 24, 25 years as a commando in, in the Royal Marines. And 
I know you did some really interesting stuff, although when we did our prep chat, you played it down. You were like, oh, yeah, I worked with Somali pilots, pilots, <laughs> pirates even. That wasn't as interesting as it sounds. But I think you have done interesting stuff. What are the highlights of your Marines career, would you say? I've done a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of stuff that I joined the Marines to do. But I would say the best, proudest maybe, was being a Sergeant Major. And I don't mean that because I was in charge. I don't mean it like that at all. But I think one of the greatest privileges of my life was to lead some of the country's finest young men. You know, they're extraordinary men. To be their Sergeant Major was a huge privilege, a really, really big privilege for me. I mean, you spent time on the front line, I'm guessing, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And I think that takes a special kind of person to be able to do that and a special mindset, which presumably you're trained to the nth degree to do. There used to be a thing that said 99.9% .9 need not apply, which was a little bit over the top. And the only people that ever appealed to were South Africans, believe it or not. Everybody else was like, well, what's the point? But I never wanted to do something easy. I always wanted to do something. My dad was in the Royal Marines, so that was my main reason, I guess. But I didn't see the point in doing anything that was easy or not as difficult as it was. When I was a kid, I had asthma. But all I wanted to do was join the Marines. And everyone used to tell me, you're never going to get in the Marines, you've got asthma. This was years, obviously, back in the 60s, 70s, when they didn't really understand how to control asthma and all the rest of it. And I remember I had to come to London to have a special test to see that I was okay. And But the more people told me I couldn't do that, what do you mean I can't do it? Well, of course I can do it. You know, I think that's in us all. You're not going to get through Raw Marines training unless you've got that level of determination. I've been asked before, well, what separates a commando, if you like, from the normal army, if, if, if I can put it like that? And I think the difference is that ability to endure and to ignore the discomfort, to ignore the fact that you're cold, to ignore the fact that you're wet, you're knackered and all the rest of it. And it's, it's that drive to just keep going despite those things. Whereas I think maybe other people would go, oh, it's a bit cold. I think that's really what separates everything or everybody. So it's definitely a mindset. The British Army is the finest army in the world. There's no, there's no question about that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to set myself aside, but there is a difference. There is. And that mindset presumably has helped you in some of your challenges. Not that many years ago, I know you love mountain climbing and you climb Mont Blanc. I would imagine you drew, perhaps, when you were doing that, on some of the training that you'd had. Tell us a bit about that and, and why you decided to take on that challenge at the time. I think it was seven years ago now I was diagnosed with MS. So I've got secondary progressive MS, which is a degenerative disease, which means it just gets worse. There's no, there's no getting away from it. It doesn't get better. The one I've got, there are no drugs that can help. So they're the cards I've got and I've just got to get on with it. And I just thought, well, okay, they are the cards I've been given, but what can I do with them? So I could either just sort of roll over and die. But as you alluded to earlier, the, the sort of mindset was, well, I'm not going to roll over and die. Sod you, MS. You're not stopping me doing the things I want to do. And I'd been on a little road trip on my motorbike with my wife and we stopped in Chamonix at a friend's house. And we went up the cable car and I looked at Mont Blanc and I thought, that's amazing. I'd love to climb that. I should climb that. And it's literally a decision there and then. So I started planning it and I roped in some other people. So my son, my brother, another guy I served in the Marines with who had MS. And funnily enough, when he got diagnosed, we used to take the mickey out of him. And I had my leaving due from the Marines on board HMS Victory. And I'd phone him up and say, mate, I don't know if you're going to get up the stairs. You know, we'd get your wheelchair up the stairs. And he's not in a wheelchair at all. That's so but it's that cool, military humour, you know. We were just, <laughs> the dark humour. So can you imagine when I phoned him up two or three years later and said, mate, I've just been diagnosed with MS. And he went, calm as a bitch, isn't it? And it was, it, was, it was really funny. So he came along with us. And then what we did, my son didn't do any training at all. He didn't do any exercise at all. And I said, mate, this is an actual mountain. It's not this isn't a this stroll. Isn't a stroll. Mountains, you need yeah. to be sort of quite fit for this. And he did a little bit. But what I did was I climbed all four of the highest peaks in all four countries 
of the UK. So I, you know, we went to Northern Ireland where Mac, the other guy with MS lives, Ben Nevis is the last one, Scaifield Pike and Snowden. And it was really just to see how I was able to cope with going up and down a mountain with MS, which is very different to not having it, trying different kits and just working with the guys that I was just going to be climbing the mountain with. And we couldn't all get to every mountain because of work and all the rest of it. So that was the thought behind it. I wanted to raise money for the MS charity, which is a really small charity, relatively speaking. It is really small. I got a pack from the MS Trust within 20 seconds of being diagnosed. That's kind of why they were in my mind. And I thought that's a fantastic thing to do. I read it avidly, did a lot of research online. And, you know, even now, if I've got a question about my MS, I can go online to the MS Trust. So they're amazing and support. And they're lovely people. And I, do you know what? I've met some amazing people, people I would not have met had I not got MS. And so... I'm often asked, do you hate MS? I don't hate it. I'd rather not have it, of course, but but I've got it. And so there's no point hating it because I think that will just have a negative effect. And so I look at the positives and everybody that I've met as a result of having MS, just extraordinary people, I think. They're much more extraordinary than I could possibly want to be. A young lady called Edith, who's in a wheelchair. And what an amazing character she is. She's amazing. And so there's all these other people that I respect hugely. So yeah, I wanted to make money for them. So off we went to Chamonix and, and climbed Mont Blanc. That's awesome. And I have a feeling that you're going to do more adventuring. I, I think you're not just going to sit still and let it get to you. I think you'll be doing all sorts of amazing things. Before we end, one other thing I wanted to mention was coming to the Ceramic Poppies in, I think it was 2014, which marked the centenary of World War I. My granddad Barker fought in World War I, age 16. He went over the top at the Somme and only survived because he got shot through the calf muscle minutes after the battle had started, but carried back through the trenches, etc. But I think he was always not ashamed of that, but he never felt himself a hero when he died aged 100, the last surviving member of the Grimsby Chums. But the fact he was shot through the leg saved his life. And I wouldn't be here today if Grandad hadn't survived the Somme. That must have been really emotional to see the poppies in the yes. moat and to... To just pay respects, really, to everybody who gave their lives in that war. Yes, you're absolutely right. As it started to develop, after the Queen and Prince Philip visited, that's when it really went crazy mad after that. But it's interesting you mentioned the Somme because five or 6,000 men were killed in the first five minutes of the Battle of the Somme. And I think it was 25,000 by the end of that first day. Now, that's just a big number. We know that's a big number. But what does that look like? So when they kind of started to put these poppies in, we guesstimated that this area here is about 25,000 poppies. And it's only when you see each one of those was a person, it really, really bought that. And we've all been in the military, we've lost friends, and we're all interested in different aspects of past conflicts. But to see that as an actual number in front of you was, was incredible. As it sort of progressed, it just got more and more awesome. And one of the great things that we did, but there was a little mound in the middle, over on the west moat. And each evening, one of us would stand on that mound and we'd have a, a folder. I can't remember if it was 160 or 180 names. And so what you could do is you could write in or apply online and you would have, let's say Uncle Bert was killed on the Somme. First of all, they'd check that there was an Uncle Bert so that you weren't just sort of doing it. And then Uncle Bert's name would be added to the list. And of course they couldn't do the whole million that were killed, but we did as many as we could. And we all sneakily added our own sort of names on the bottom as well. And then there would be a microphone that we would stand in front of. And on the end of the microphone was a GoPro camera. So if you lived in Australia, as an example, and your Uncle Bert was part of the Australian Armed Forces, you could then watch me read his name out. But in Australia, you would be told when it, his name's getting read out. So each evening, one of us would stand there and we would just go through these names. You weren't aware of it because it was the winter, of course, but on the hill there, you'll remember, it was just thousands, thousands, thousands of people because the lights were on, you, you weren't really aware of it. But a lot of people whose names that we were reading out, their relatives were up there. So it was brilliant. And when we read the names out, we'd finished reading the names out. We read the uh, the player, you know, they shall grow out old. 
We read that out and then a bugler would step forward and play the last post. Anyone who tells you that didn't move them is an absolute lie because it was incredible. And when I first did it, to my left, so over to the south of London, there was a thunderstorm in the distance and you could just see the lightning and it was like the guns were firing. It's like I imagine the guns would be firing on the First World War and you could then hear the rumble of the thunder a few minutes later when it arrived. And, it, and I was just like, bloody hell, that's, that's a little bit... Uh, and many Amazing. of them were kids. And yeah, they, they were, were kids, yeah. Teenagers yeah. who, I think my granddad lied about his age yeah. to get in. So 2023, I'm guessing one of the things that holds for you is a new uniform because I noticed last night, of course, you've still got the Queen's, I don't know what it is, ensign, cipher. is it? Cipher, the Queen's yeah. cipher on your uniform. So do they all have to be remade now for yeah. King Charles III? They do. So initially... The idea was to unpick the E2R and sew a, a C3R on. But <laughs> that sounds a silly idea. It does, isn't it? it well, yeah, it's, it's all about money, isn't it? So, but the uniforms fade a lot. You know, do they? Yeah, they do. So if you if you unpicked that, you would still very clearly see it much darker blue E2R. So then they thought, well, maybe just cut that panel out at the front, but for the same reason, the rest of the uniform would be light blue. Because it's all dark. it's all handmade, isn't it? <clears throat> it is. We're all getting issued three new uniforms: so two for the summer, one for the winter initially and of course you get you usually get a new uniform each year but the cipher has to go off to the lord chamberlain who has to okay that because he's the man in charge of all these things and we're on our third iteration of that at the moment because if you look at them there's sort of dots on top of the crown there has to be an amount of dots in a certain distance apart whatever there's other little gaps in the crown these all have to be absolutely perfect and i think the first two weren't and you mean you wouldn't have seen Apparently they weren't. So we're on the third one, which we think is going to get the okay. And once that's got the okay, just a case of cutting it out, I suppose, and sewing it onto the... Because they've all got our measurements. We won't wear them until we've all got one. So rather than come out in dribs and drabs. But um, it'll be before, before the, coronation, the coronation, I'm yeah. guessing. I mean, the attention yeah. to detail here on everything, on the history to the ceremony, is really beautiful to witness. I've always thought that if I ever did Mastermind, my subject would be the part of the Tower of London. Will you coach <laughs> me if I ever do yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real privilege to come by myself last night it was magical. And to also come today and just walk in and be in your home at the Tower and hear your stories firsthand. It has truly been a treat. So thank you, Andy. No, my You're pleasure. Amazing. Thank you very much for coming. You're very welcome. You have been listening to Yeoman Warder Andy Merry sharing tales from the Tower of London's gripping thousand-year history from his home inside this magnificent fortress. I don't want to leave, really, but my coffee's empty and I think Andy's got to go to bed because he was the watchman last night. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. There are more than a hundred episodes to choose from. I'll be back next week. Join me then. 